has there ever been a time in recent memory where we've had to spend so much time worrying about other people's choices, which we don't have control over? And how much does other people's choices, you know, you have pictures of walking down the street and we all probably have played this game at some point. You kind of wonder about somebody's backstory. And if you're Sherlock Holmes, you can probably like say what that is, but none of us are, right? Yeah. So now we're in a world where you go to the grocery store and you're not only playing that out in your head, but you're wondering what choices did this person make today that might put me at risk? And you can't find out, that's hard. I mean, it makes me think, gosh, we can't, not only do we not capture any data, we're not even asking the questions the right way. Happy Podcast Day, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt, at KBJVanderbilt on Twitter, and at www.KevinBJohnsonMD.net on the web. Season 2 is here. I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to get to a season two, but I have enough followers that it was pretty clear we needed to do it. I took a couple of months to recharge and plan for this season. I also spent some time writing. My husband and I were participants in the Moderna vaccine trial, and I thought it was my duty to help encourage people of color to get the vaccine, so that's been a focus for the last few months. It continues to be a major problem, as you know, and I'm continuing to do what I can, as is Rob. But I also know you're trying to get your 10,000 steps in a day, and not having a recent episode of Informatics in the Round is affecting your health, so here we are. <laughs> Our first episode of the year should have the theme, Meeting Guests Where They Are. We welcome back Sarah Bland, who was a regular on the podcast, and for which I'm so thankful. Sarah is a leading project manager in our informatics department, and is so knowledgeable about informatics and precision medicine but also has a life that she's going to share with this episode. She's had a lot going on in the last few months. A lot of it relates to this topic, and I was pleased that she was willing to share it with everyone. Alyssa Abler and Hannah Smith are a wonderful team. In their professional life, they are the singer-songwriter duo called The Daily Fair. Check out their brand of indie Americana soul music in this episode and on their website, which is www thedailyfairmusic.com or on Facebook. Alyssa and Hannah also have had quite a few experiences over the last few months related to COVID and were, again, very comfortable sharing them with us and really took us in a direction that we weren't planning, hence the idea of a theme meeting people where they want to go. Colin Walsh is a national expert in predictive analytics, also known as AI occasionally called machine learning, focusing on mental health and behavioral disorders. Dr. Walsh is also a physician and cares deeply about wellness. That will become very apparent in this episode. So, what data do we as informaticians need to help people manage life after COVID? That was the initial focus of the episode. But one of the themes of the conversation, as you heard in the lead-in, is what are the actual questions people need to be asking today so that we can capture the information they actually need us to know as healthcare providers? It was a great episode. I learned a lot and looking forward to your feedback on it. Speaking of questions, by the way, I need to hear from you about topics you want us to cover. I'm on Twitter at KBJ Vanderbilt, and you also can leave me comments on my Facebook site for Informatics in the Round or on our Podbean site for the podcast. Well, let's get to it. Hope you enjoy. And yes, there's some great music near the end, so listen to the whole show. That just sucks so bad, I can't even tell you. Um, I was 40 so Oh, Sarah, you were with me when that happened. I was, I was yeah. going to say, I had the PTSD from that. <laughs> 
We recorded, I think, one of the most dynamic, funny, vibrant, you know, just, I mean, we were, the limoncello was flowing. We had all kinds of stuff going on. And then as everybody's leaving, I looked over at my computer and nothing had been recorded. Oh no. And I was, was like pain in my heart. It was it was and bad. I, and the worst part was I had to decide do I even tell them? Like do I go, "Thank you. This was great. See you later." Holy shit. <laughs> or oh, man. or and I just told them. I said, "We'll do this again in pieces." So we and we did. Every, every it's yeah. we recovered and it's as everybody who's ever done anything like this. I'm sure you guys in the studio have had this happen. You have to do all of those things at least once and then have the scar tissue that uh prevents it from happening again. So Colin, tell us about tell us about you. Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is uh, Colin. I'm a faculty at Vanderbilt, obviously, in biomedical informatics. Uh, I'm a doc. And part of my time, I do primary care. And a little bit of my time, uh, most of my time is doing research, um, building predictive models that we hope are useful, which is the most important thing. Um, and we tackle problems like suicide and prescription overdose and uh, treatment resistance, which is somebody with depression who gets medication doesn't do that well on that. And how do we build models that help us identify those people early? So, so that's me. And we run a lab uh, at Vanderbilt, not far from where Kevin's sitting right now. You think I'm sitting right there, but this could be a virtual background. That's fair. <laughs> I can tell you, it's actually, it's actually not the, today for other reasons. So Alyssa and Hannah, tell them tell about you. Uh, we are an Americana soul duo here in Nashville. Listen to, listen to yeah. you. <laughs> you did not actually you did not actually classify yourselves as americana soul the last time yeah um i don't know if we knew last time <laughs> i think we we did i don't think we ever I, we mostly i think just were like i mean we're in a room full of geniuses and <laughs> we're songwriters <laughs> yeah um yeah we're getting ready to release our record on uh march 3rd as those really? in Nashville know what March 3rd was last year. It was kind of the pinnacle, or rather the beginning of us not putting out a record last year. Yeah. Because um, we were going to do it the third week of March, and then we were still doing tornado cleanup. So um, we kind of just pressed pause on things for pretty much a year. Yeah. Um, tried to find a way through it. And <laughs> Now, are you going to tour or do anything with this album? Um hopefully at some point you know whether it's this year or next year or the year after we will you know god willing um tour out the actual record as it's meant to be but on march 5th we're doing like a beginning to end uh performing it um with this group here in town called tune den Hmm. and they are wonderful um artists in their own rights and they have a studio where they basically it's meant to help artists have great live performances recorded. Nice. So we, we did a show with them a few months ago and we asked them if we could come and do our release show because the quality of the product was so great. So then eventually releasing that as a, a thing as well. So, yeah. So Colin, this will be your chance to like ask music city insiders, any questions you've ever wanted. Cause, <laughs> cause you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the little lecture that I've been giving lots of people around COVID and then we can go ahead and get started because I want to help everybody up. So, you know, this whole thing about like you're a whole bunch, we're a bunch of really smart people and I can't believe you're in, we're in the same room with you, which of course you already know, I think is bullshit, but I'm going to tell you why. And particularly, I think that way yeah. I'm, I'm really no longer as convinced about what it means to be an intellectual or smart as I ever was, um, you know, whether it be a grove of birch trees or you know, cicadas that choose to stay underground until, you know, the right time. I think, I think we've just all evolved to be clever in different ways. And as humans, we interpret our ability, our ability to be clever as intellect and smartness. I just, I think we have a giant built environment. We in some ways live in a giant Potemkin village. We have no idea, you know, COVID reminds us just how vulnerable this whole environment is. I mean, what would happen to us if we lost electricity as a species for a year, right? I literally just had that conversation <laughs> yeah. with Alyssa last week. Yeah. So how smart are we really? You know, <laughs> we, we we build fires in our backyard. We cook all the time. We have like all the utensils to like literally exist. I mean, and how are you going to, you, you growing your vegetables? Yeah. Do you yep. kill your own meat? Um, I could. And I mean, I have a bow and arrow and a machete. I mean, I have a lot of things from 
a very weird life I've led. Um, that <laughs> people would be like, "Really, you have that skill set too?" Like, yep. But it's something I like. You know, zombie apocalypse. I'm ready. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, you are. Well, <laughs> I feel like she might be more ready than me for some of those things. But. So you just don't let her go. But yeah, right. So we'll just we'll just jump right in. So the reason I thought this would be a great group to get together is because we've all been through COVID and each of us have had a very different experience with COVID. Um, I should ask the question, has anybody had any personal experiences with COVID at this point? Oh yeah. Do you want to, yeah. are you comfortable sharing it? I, I got permission before, before we got started for sure. Good. So this is Sarah. I like to start off like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> guy from Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, in the past uh, past year, um, my wife had COVID um, and back in November, uh, actually December. Um, she is a respiratory therapist, so she thought she had COVID a couple of times um, from exposure. Thankfully, didn't, but in December she did. Um, but my father-in-law um, actually got COVID back in uh, November. Um, was in the hospital for about six days and then was gone. Uh, he did not think, um, he didn't realize he was going to die until maybe maybe four hours before. Oh he didn't gosh. know that that was actually happening. Uh, and as a result, our life has changed significantly. So, I think significant is probably an understatement. Yeah. So uh, uh, we, my father-in-law was keeping a 10-year-old um, boy that, he was family friends with. Um, and so when he went into the hospital, um, we ended up taking uh, the 10-year-old into our care. And now we have custody of him, um, potentially long-term, if not permanently. So we went from being a family of two plus a zoo of animals to a family of three, um, all because of COVID. So. Wow. Well, I would say my heart goes out to you, but I know how strong you guys are, and that's the last thing you'll need. You you just need a, us to you know get out of your way so that you can succeed. So. <laughs> yeah, it, I will say though, uh, the learning experience of being able to see COVID firsthand. Um, you know, I've been helping with the COVID registry that we have here at Vanderbilt for um, since about April or May uh, of last year. So to see it firsthand was a whole different experience. Um, to, to be in the ICU, to see the different patients. Um, I've grown up in the hospital, never seen anything like it. So Hannah and Alyssa, do you guys have any idea what a COVID registry is? It sounds like where you put everyone's you... name that gets it. Yeah, so here at Vanderbilt, we have this really amazing ability to uh, de-identify records um, or pull them from the medical record system um, to be able to use them for research. We get consent um, from patients to make sure that they don't uh, mind that we're using this data. Um, when COVID started, we knew that this was gonna be uh, really important for us to collect information on the COVID pa patient population here at Vanderbilt because we knew so many patients were gonna end up uh, probably in our care instead of rural hospitals. So uh, we started pretty quickly. Um, Josh Peterson and uh, Lisa Basterash in the um, department started a registry to be able to put that information together. So essentially it's just taking all that data and saying we wanna segregate it so that uh, we know it's the COVID patients and then starting to pull other information that might seem like it would be pretty important information like smoking status or um, if they're inpatient versus outpatient, um, did they get intubated and put on a ventilator or not? Things like that. And, you know, usually I'm not for segregation, but in this yeah. one case, I thought it was really important. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me yeah. tell you how I'm going to weave all this together because Colin, uh, although kind of junior, he's moved very quickly through the ranks here and has become very well known for the work that he's done with suicide ideation, suicide attempts, and using data of the type that we would have in one of these registries, potentially, to identify these patients before they have an event. And Colin, can you say a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Our research program, gosh, is uh, just about five years old at this point. And we really started from a simple question, which is, can we use data we're already collecting for other reasons to do a better job of identifying those people 
who may be at higher risk than somebody else for things we care a lot about, like a suicide attempt. Um, we did that by partnering. We work with psychologists and suicide researchers and now psychiatrists and social workers. We had a call with wonderful friends in the Navy that includes um, captains in the Navy down to um, folks who are actually doing the care on the ground. So really everybody has a stake in this. And our work is really intended, the, the key word here is useful. We're trying to make models that we know won't be perfect, but might be useful to better identify those people who might be at risk for suicide. And just this week, we were talking with uh, folks like Lisa Bastrash, Sarah, who you mentioned, thinking about that COVID registry to say, we, we're seeing more and more data that mental health for those who had COVID, much less those around those who had COVID is really affected. So we see an opportunity to think about, well, can we design better tools to find people who may be suffering? Wow, I can see Hannah and Alyssa, you guys are thinking about something. What are you thinking about? Um, my family is very sick currently with COVID. And I mean, I think we could all just in general looking around at, you know, people on a Zoom call or people we've seen in the stores or friends, you know, we've distanced with like this year has weighed heavy. <laughs> and how do you even quantify, you know, people who, I mean, I feel like the entire population is at risk <laughs> for they are um, just an upspike in in suicide and mental health issues and i've noticed it in myself like there's this like super feeling and sarah i'm sure you felt this way too like you you like can be like really strong and bold about it and but also there's this part of you that goes well i can't fix this like i can't make my sister not have covid i can't make my mom not have covid i can't make my dad leave the house because he's already been exposed and now he's sick and then my grandma died of it like it really current like it's hitting my family really hard in the last couple of months um so i i guess more of it is like a question of being who i am i go okay well i need to talk to somebody so that i don't end up in a position where my family ends up spiraling and you know what I mean like that that being aware of your own mental health to, to prevent it from affecting certain ways but um I mean just remember it takes courage to even say what you just said and you know give yourself credit for that courage I think if, if our work has made any difference so far it's that it's made it we think in some small way easier to talk about because it's a hard topic and mental health and suicide even in 2021, there's a lot of stigma there. And step one is we got to talk about it because if we aren't able to talk about it, we're never going to fix it. So, yeah. so thank you for having the bravery to, to speak up as you did. And it's, yeah, and I think, <clears throat> oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have noticed recently a bit more of people stigmatizing it again, where yeah. like I felt like we were making headway about people being better about speaking up about their mental health or at least going and getting some help. But since everybody is struggling, there's almost this like, well, just get over it. Yeah. I, I would add that I think the two of the mental health things that I noticed the most would be that one with my wife and with uh, our kiddo, they both felt at a loss. Like there, like you said, there's absolutely nothing we can do you know, my wife is a respiratory therapist. And so of all illnesses for her dad to die of, a, an illness where he couldn't breathe. And that was his main complaint is I just can't breathe. Um, her entire family who are not healthcare related um, or knowledgeable were looking to her to fix him. And uh, we finally had a doctor who was able to put in terms we just can't do anything. So that helplessness um, weighed very, very heavily on her, um, especially after they finally were able to help him make a decision of, okay, I don't wanna be intubated. I know that's not gonna help. And really seeking counseling for that has been so important for her to be able to talk through that because it comes in waves. Um, some days she knows that intellectually, Th this is COVID, there's just not much you can do with someone who's 65 and has other illnesses and, you know, has had COVID for three weeks. The other side of it is to watch a 10-year-old um, feel the same way, um, to feel very, when, when I, I had to tell him that David died um, and they were very close, it was like a, a grandfather for him or, or 
an uncle. I mean, he he's known him his entire life. And so I was the one to deliver that news. And it was it, the part that ripped me apart most was that he felt like it was his fault mm. because he had gone to school or did I not wear my mask enough? Um, did, you know, did I give it to him? Um, and so he assumed it must've been him that caused the illness and it wasn't at all. Um, we got him tested. He was negative. Um, he had been tested several times around that and was negative. Um, it's just that, you know, my father-in-law happened to go out and, you know, probably went to a restaurant and had exposure just to watch a 10 year old deal with that. And to have, have the terms of, I don't know if I should be alive if he's, if he's not alive and things like that. It's just not something you want to hear from a 10 year old. Um, and, and so the seriousness around this um, for younger populations, I think is really, really key to, to study and understand because I can't imagine what it's going to be like in 10 years for them um, mm-hmm. dealing with this level of trauma. With everything that's going on with this, you know, this disease and all the ways that it's impacting families, I, I continually ask myself, is there going to be a way that we can use the data and the experiences we have right now to somehow not have the other shoe fall, right? Not have the sequelae of a disease. And for those of you who don't think about this, in medicine, there's this thing that we can get called strep throat. And strep throat used to be, uh, you know, you get you get an infection in your throat, maybe you didn't need to take any medicine because it just went away. What people didn't realize was that strep throat was a setup for another disease called rheumatic fever. And that the same exact organism disappeared and then reemerged and affected your heart. So now we have COVID. There are early data that suggest all sorts of things that may be related to the loss of taste and smell. Uh, There are certainly this group of people who nobody wants to call long haulers, but by using that term, everybody knows what we're talking about. And I can't help but think that there's something in the data for the patients now who've, who've lost their lives that could actually tell us something about the future for people who didn't in terms of sequelae. So the question I have for Colin is, so, you know, you're, you're a pro at prediction. So we have this registry. Are we setting ourselves up well to be able to answer these longer term questions as well as to hopefully get people services before they might actually need them? Or is there no hope? So there's hope. The, the first building block is measuring what we're doing right now. Like the step one is counting. People we know have been touched directly by COVID is the place to start. And if we track that, we monitor that, we now have a registry that allows us to follow these folks over time, we can see what's happening to them. But it also becomes a catalyst for conversations to say, okay, well, what aren't we capturing? What aren't we doing? How do we reach the people in that person's sphere, their network, their family? How do we reach out to those people? What data are we not collecting? We rely so heavily in our work on data we're collecting to deliver healthcare. But so much of that is around things like billing, a medical diagnosis code. You know, that's not necessarily the data we, it's the data, I often say it's the data we have, not necessarily the data we need. Right. So do we need to expand to the data on somebody's smartwatch if they consent to give it to us? Do we need that data on social media? Do we need data around finance, which we never have in electronic health records and the facts that people have lost their jobs or they've watched their industry collapse because restaurants are shut down? You know, those are stressors we're going to have to think a lot about. We don't have the we don't have the calipers there right now. But the first step is measuring and counting what we're doing right now. And the registry, I really think, is the start to do that. And then also, again, you know, we already talked about talking about things that are hard to talk about. This allows us to have that conversation. Oh, that's great. So, Hannah, Alyssa, Sarah, are there things that are happening in your world right now that you'd say, "Boy, I wish my healthcare providers had that." They would know a lot more about what's going on with me, or they would be much better able to treat somebody else who maybe isn't as comfortable sharing. I, maybe I brought this up last time we spoke, and I'm not going to call back to that episode in case anyone hasn't heard it. But oh no, very, do do I'll I'll okay. make sure I mention it twice that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a I've become a much more open person in the past decade or so with with my own um, information and my own life, and I don't. I'm not sure that there's anything 
often to be gained by being too secretive right about certain things so they're depending on how people grow up honestly i think that's where like a lot of that fear initially comes from and your background with the medical world versus the religious world versus where like the um environment and the types of people you grew up around a lot of my mentality has shifted over the past several years to just realizing that more openness is actually better and maybe more challenging at times but it's so freeing on a, another level like i i don't think yeah. that there are, i mean i don't have a lot of things to hide about my health and especially the stuff uh, like i can't donate blood because i had melanoma and realizing that's something that i wouldn't have thought of uh, prior to experiencing all the things i did with that illness mm-hmm. but that's something that ran in my family and i didn't I didn't know anything about it before I actually had it myself. I think the people in that work in food service and um, that essential kind of work, however you yeah. want to classify it, anyone doing that kind of job is uh, has had to take a much more drastic approach to their own awareness of who's around them because there are strangers. Like I'm a barista, there are strangers coming in to where I work all day long. I don't know where they've been. I know where my friends have been. I know where Hannah's been. I know where my coworkers have been for the most part. I hope like it's yeah. you, there's only so much information you can really trust and knowing yeah. that you're going to come into contact with X amount of people who you have no idea mm-hmm. what their home situation is or what kind of socializing they've been doing is it can that I think I've gotten over the stress of that at this point because so it's important. just there. How about exercise? Are you guys exercising? We kind of. Well, <laughs> God, I love the silence. No, so that was. So what? Both... What is this uh, Excel size? <laughs> of what you speak? We don't I like work out. We yeah. like. I mean, we're active human beings. So, like, I mean, my gardening. You know, it's a very, very physical thing that I do. What I do for a living is a very physical thing. Um. And I make sure that like, you know, I'm doing stretches so that I don't damage myself and yoga and things like that to just kind of bring stillness to my super overworked body. Are you doing more or less of that with all of the family stress? I'm working more. Hmm. (laughs) Um, I would say, um, but that I realized this week was actually more of a mental strain on me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually, like, I put two clients today that know each other and socialize so that I'm not overexposing them to like me going from house to house kind of a thing. I, I clean houses. I don't want that to sound like I'm like doing anything weird. No, I was, um, was going to ask. I wasn't, so. I wasn't completely sure. Cause you know, I have to, I'd have to declare this whole podcast as a different kind of podcast on Apple if you hadn't done that. Right. Exactly. No. So, uh, I'm a on-call personal assistant and home organizer oh. and, um, but like I wear masks and gloves when I go into people's homes, I wash everything when I leave. And then I, shower when I get home like basically treat it like I'm a I'm a doctor going out you know coming home from surgery so just... so as I hear you say on all this and you know Colin I'm hearing her say so obviously you're having a lot of mental anguish and both of you are experiencing the fact that the jobs that you that you're in when you're not doing songwriting although I'm sure you're doing song developing while you're doing them um put you in in the hand in the hands of strangers who you have to trust and that that probably has some physiologic effect on you Mm -hmm. do you ever feel your heart racing or do you feel yourself having a hard time sleeping because of all of those experiences uh over christmas i i traveled for christmas i did the big no-no uh-huh you know i was very safe about it as safe as you could possibly have been got tested before i left my family all got tested but um my parents, because of their jobs, have kind of socializing responsibilities. Oh. And I mean, I full on, I had a super meltdown because I've not been doing that. You know, like we've not been touring. We've not been hanging out with a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, that was that was a big one. I had to yeah. like go in another room and just calm down because people, that's that moment you go, okay, not everybody is doing 
what I'm doing to right. make mm-hmm. sure other people are safe and that I am not infecting them. Yeah, I mean, you know, it makes me think, I mean, gosh, the, we, we always worry about our own choices, but I feel there's never been, a, has there ever been a time in recent memory where we've had to spend so much time worrying about other people's choices, which we don't have control over. And how much does other people's choices, you know, you have pictures of walking down the street and we all probably have played this game at some point. You kind of wonder about somebody's backstory. And if you're Sherlock Holmes, you can probably like say what that is, but none of us are, right? Yeah. So now we're in a world where you go to the grocery store and you're not only playing that out in your head, but you're wondering what choices did this person make today that might put me at risk? And you can't find out. That's hard. I mean, it makes me think, gosh, we can't, not only do we not capture any data, we're not even asking the questions the right way. You know, how, when's the last time you felt unsafe? What do you do that brings you joy today? You know, we don't ask those questions. And that might be more important than any of the, you know, the diagnostic codes we've got. Um, for those people around them, and certainly in the longer term things we're talking about, I think we have to start thinking, maybe start thinking that way. I mean, systems that are a little, that are more compassionate in that way and ask people questions that are actually important to them as opposed to those questions that are important to us. Yeah. What I hear you saying a lot, Colin, is something that I don't think healthcare does often. And I think about it this way because I think about contact tracing and how hard that has been. Oh my gosh. uh, I'm not starting that, okay? I'm just saying as the public (laughs) health person here, Contact tracings have been a little bit difficult, not very great, but I hear what you're saying. And I think you are trying to take healthcare and make it uh, preventative, which is not something healthcare usually is because it's really, I get sick, I go to the doctor, especially if you are someone in a economic situation where that's where the only, probably the only time you go to the doctor, if I get sick and I have to go. We don't in America really think about healthcare as preventative unless um, maybe the dentist. And even that is difficult to really quantify for a lot of people. But you're saying, you know, hey, we need to think about how um, one thing I, my wife and I talked about is how the holidays are tough for us now. It used to be a really fun thing. And now it's a little bit tougher because of everything that happened around the holidays. So we're more cognizant that next year we might need to think about that you know, instead of just getting to Thanksgiving and Christmas and acting as normal, and then all of a sudden being upset, let's think about how can we make it a little, uh, a little bit different to think about our own mental health. So you're thinking about healthcare as a preventative model, not so much as uh, the usual come in when you're sick. Yeah, we talk about it a lot. And you know, we're, we're a society, you know, we reward heroism, and we reward reaction. You know, when it's like, you look at how often CPR on TV, and how often is CPR successful on TV. It's more than three out of four, four of the times. How often is it successful in real life? It's less than 20% of the time, depending on who you ask. So, you know, it's, you know, Kevin, I can ask you, when's the last time a parent thanked you as a pediatrician for preventing, I don't know, polio in their kids? <laughs> Has that ever happened? Law scored seven years ago. Right? <laughs> right? Nobody's ever thanked me for preventing that heart attack. They, they weren't. Actually, you know what? I do have an answer for that. It was Jesus. He was seven weeks old. <laughs> And I would, they were so happy that I was able to remember. No, just kidding. Um, I'm probably in trouble for saying that, by the way. So, Colin, it sounds like what we've got to do is we've got to develop an app that retains some kind of predictive stressometer so that patients can carry it around. And as the holidays loom, if their cumulative stress has hit some point, we should be able to say to them, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do the stressful thing. Yeah, there's a couple pieces. There's the passive piece, which is like, hey, we're just, we're checking. You give us permission to do that. Hopefully we get permission to do that. And we're seeing your behavior seems to be really different than it was the other day. And maybe you're just not wearing your watch anymore. Maybe something's really changed for your life. You were sleeping six, seven hours a night. Now you're sleeping three. That's big. Then there's the active piece, which is helping people be more engaged. We, we talk about that a lot too, but mm-hmm. we know people are willing to, we see this right now. We're willing to share with each other because we feel comfortable doing that. There's a therapeutic effect to just sharing. Right? We all know that. Like I went through something really tough and if I get to talk about it, it's not nearly as tough as it was before I talked about it. So I think it takes all kinds. And I think, you know, we, we said before, it's overwhelming if you try to think about all the building blocks and all the pieces, and it totally is. So knowing that just those small wins are gonna end up being the big ones, if we just carve off pieces that we think we can get to. I think it's doable though, in what you just said, especially in the passive way, because, you know, if my heart rate increases, my, my iWatch will tell me, you should take a moment to breathe. Um, it will tell me every mm. hour or so to make sure I stand. 
And there's other apps that already do that and they integrate with health on um, the iPhone and My Health and Vanderbilt integrates with health on the iPhone. So there should be some way to connect some of these things um, and say, we wanna help, help you check in with your own mental health. Help us help you, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look at that the CDC's done with, with VSAFE. For those of you who may or may not know about that, as they're vaccinating people, people get an opportunity to share a cell phone number and then they text and say, hey, we're gonna check in with you. Can you answer some questions? It takes seconds for people to do, but it's a way to say, hey, right on the device you probably are already holding, answer some questions. And oh, in a week, we're gonna check in with you again. And it's not a big investment. They may, they've tried to make it as easy as they can. And I think that's gonna enable them to do some really interesting things and help us learn more quickly in scaling out a vaccination effort that's never been done before. We're gonna learn a lot yep. because they figured out a smart way to get to people. I will say that um, in the research area, there's, a, there's been a technique that we've used called ecological momentary assessment. And the whole idea of ecological momentary assessment is catching you at random or maybe even prescribed times every day and asking questions about how you're doing and what you're doing in that moment. So as I listen to you, Hannah, talking about everything that you're doing and Alyssa, the work that you're spending and the, and the stresses, I can imagine that if there were systems we had in place right now to ask you a question before you got to work, how excited are you about going in today? And you knew that there was a COVID surge, you, you would manifest that in an answer that would be different than it might've been on a, you know, a rainy Saturday when, you know, you didn't have anything to worry about. You were just not particularly excited about going to work. Am I right? Yeah. I was actually just thinking, I have some apps that actually do that every day. They say, how are you feeling today? Hmm. And it, because I am aware my mental health is here or there <laughs> some yeah. days. And uh, it reminds me to like, take some time and to breathe and to meditate, you know, be aware of myself throughout the day so that I can find a safety, a, a safety. And also I was thinking there's another app that, um, that I use um, just full disclosure. Like it's a period tracking app, but it does ask what they've Sorry. like, they've, <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they help you decipher patterns yeah. um, in like your mood and stuff like that leading up to so you can kind of be better aware of what it if something is happening to you mentally it might be tied to this but it's also a very real thing a physiological thing that you're going through and it talks you through what is actually happening like it, it's like medical medical in the way that it talks to you on kind of a real level though saying these are these are things that are happening if that is what makes me feel like I'm getting a bearing and I'm not going to just go out and hurt somebody or hurt myself. And that data needs to be used to check in. I think there is a way to helpfully do that for people because we really have no idea what's coming around the corner mentally for people when this passes. This is Kevin Johnson, and you're listening to Informatics in the Round. And now I want to come back to this point. Let me ask Colin a question about this. So, so Colin, all of these data that you're now hearing, um, we are not capturing. Do you think it's going to matter? Do you think that, um, that we should be making this a priority for the field right now to figure out how do we get in the, in the, in the mind space of a lot of the patients who are being affected by this disease so that we can understand these things in the future? Not every problem needs a predictive model, right? There's a lot of problems we have just fighting this pandemic that aren't gonna necessarily respond immediately to what we're talking about here. But I think to seed the field for longer term health and prevention and knowing, being honest about how much we don't know. And I think, um, I think it was, and I think you said it the best, you know, we don't know what's coming, right? So being honest with ourselves about how much we don't know that's coming and seed in the field so that we've got a good chance of of if we don't know what's gonna come, how can we react a little bit better? And how can we be prevention focused as, as Sarah, you said so nicely. I think it makes sense to do. You know, I don't think it's the thing that we need to kind of keep the lights on and, and get the, the water flowing in the pipes right now, but that's just because we're fighting this uphill battle uh, you know, against, the, against this virus that just keeps changing on us and doing challenging things. And uh, we're on the other side, I think, in the arts who, at least yeah. Hannah and I in our, in our creative process and in our daily lives, since we do live in the same place, we have made a practice of asking each other and our friends all the questions that you were just asking hmm. about how you're doing today, how, 
like tell me about your last like tell me about your week tell me what happened did anything like what what are you thinking it's been really fascinating because some people are like wow no one's asked me that all year yeah <laughs> and wow. I, I think and we're like well that's scary <laughs> yeah whereas we do it daily I, I mean I do it daily with at least yeah. a couple of people mm-hmm. because that is like what if you're you know it's going to happen at some point all of your technology fails you as we all a bunch of us in town found on christmas uh-huh. we didn't have ways of communicating beyond the space that we were in physically so people. since so. We, ha- we have an international audience what happened mm-hmm. on christmas can you oh. remind people because <laughs> yeah, as christmas. if COVID wasn't enough here in nashville <laughs> as if tornadoes weren't enough here in nashville yeah. as if even, floods haven't been enough God. what else <laughs> Yeah, so the suicide bomber of Christmas morning in Nashville. Oh my gosh. Like, and I was I was at work when that happened, and I saw it on Twitter, and I it I was the one who told my my boss and who like a friend of ours had posted like reposted something. So, and their phones later like weren't working. So it was kind of that that moment of realizing just how fragile so many systems that we have come to rely on truly are, and what happens and what is available to people when all of those external forms of communication beyond just being able to speak and phys- or physically communicate with someone like when you lose that ability to reach out right what else can you do and that's something where with with music with art with any other form of the creative or the you know the creative arts not that yeah. what you do isn't creative it's that is something that i think in the art world it's just a natural way of engaging with one another. We've we've learned to ask those questions, but we've not really learned the data side. We don't think of it in that way, but it's the same thing on some level, I think. Yeah, that's really true. You know, thinking about the loss of technology. So what, uh, out here, we lost our internet and cable for three days. So a 10-year-old who had just gotten all these new um, game systems um, for Christmas, that was I'm trying really not to laugh. I'm trying timing. not to laugh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was so, perfect so, timing. Okay, wait, wait. I gotta <laughs> set this up. I gotta set this up. So, all of the stress going on. You and your wife are trying your best to be a brand to be brand new parents, yeah. and somebody says you're almost ready. But first, we're taking out the electricity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think the most seasoned parent I know would have crumbled would have crumbled right then and said, We're out. Go outside and play. I don't care what temperature it is. <laughs> it was my first night um being Santa too. And so Jeez. uh Crystal had to make sure that he fell asleep. So it was up to me to do everything. So um it had snowed and so I, you know, bundled up and we got him a bike for Christmas. So thankfully there was one thing that was not related to the internet. Um, but mm-hmm. I like had to go under the garage door and get the, tr- get the bike inside and everything. So I, I thought the hard part's done. You know, I, I have been Santa for the night. We've gotten through, he's gotten all of his toys and at 11 o'clock, the cable and the internet went out and we we're just like, oh. um, <laughs> so, but, but mentioning the loneliness thing and, and the connection, it was interesting because, uh, my mom lives. 10 minutes away and she lost her internet for just a very short period of time but she went into a panic because she has isolated she has um uh, aortic valve and so she um and she's 65 so she for the past year has really pretty much only gone to the grocery store and gone to work when she had to go into the office um she's come over maybe a handful of times to our house and that was after we isolated so she lost her power or lost her internet and thought my only lifeline is now gone. Um, And so the loneliness factor hit very quickly. Thankfully hers came back and we were able to move all the game systems to her house. (laughs) Um, But, but it was really interesting because um, you mentioned Alyssa and Hannah, the the check-ins that became a lifeline this year for my mom, who is a very social person Mm -hmm. um, to not have any interaction other than the grocery store. And, um, and really, it, it showed um, in her mental health significantly because she would have good days and she would just call and say, I just need to talk. I know I'm not going to talk about anything important, but I just need to have human interaction today. How many people in America don't have that? You know, I, I can't help but think there's probably a significant amount. And that's a data point that I don't know her, her doctor will ask her. Um, 
you know, because we are already seeing that there, and actually I think it came out in circulation um, today that there are associations with cardiac health and um, psychological health um, and mental health. So uh, with her having a history of heart disease, I wonder how much this year will have effect as well on her um, on her cardiac health. Think about that a lot. Yeah, I was I was thinking about you know Kevin your question before you you know do we need to be collecting these data now or what question should we be asking? And Sarah, you said it. You know the question of the question we may want to be asking now is you know how connected do you feel whatever that means and how or or on the flip side of that is how isolated do you feel? Um, you know we're social creatures even if we're introverted and I'm an introvert by my nature. I always want to feel connected to those around me in some way or feel that I've got that. And losing that is a, a really hard thing. And yeah. we definitely don't measure that right now. That is so true. I mean, I think we're probably all somewhat introverted here. And I, if, even if it's just a five minute call, enough to know that there's a person I'm thinking about who yeah. can be thinking about me, it makes a big difference. And we don't know. And I, I would wager that one of the things that we should make as a product of this podcast episode is a commitment to make sure we let our doctors all know how important it's going to be for them to to ask us those types of questions for the next few years. Because I do think that some people are going to get the vaccine early, some people aren't. There is a lot of there is a lot of loss of life here. And I think there are some people who have such strong stress responses that they're not even going to process this until many months down the road when it's kind of like when you go on vacation and you get sick you know i think the second dose of the vaccine is going to make a few people relaxed enough that they can have a good cry and get together with friends and and have a lot of hugs and we in the healthcare profession and we who are in informatics probably should be learning how we can support them during that time it did you're exactly right and uh, i will i will share an embarrassing moment of myself that I had not processed all that had happened to us since November 23rd until the day after I got my second vaccine, uh, just two weeks really? ago. I knew that my wife needed me to be very strong for her and me, needed me to be the very, here are the next steps. So, you know, no problem with the funeral home. I did all that stuff. I did, you know, I've worked with DCS, everything. I got the second vaccine and I got a really bad headache from it. And... <laughs> <laughs> the straw for me was I read the article that the gi- giraffe at the Nashville Zoo had stepped on its baby and killed it. <gasps> no, yeah. I didn't even yeah, know this. I, I teared so up sad. about that. Okay, well, spoiler alert. <laughs> oh my God, I had I, no idea. I watched I, that baby get born. Right, everyone, ha- the world had Kevin. And so I read this art, or I read a tweet about it. I immediately called my mom sobbing and said, it's dead, it's dead. And she was like, what are you talking about? And Crystal heard me and Crystal was just like, get it together. And I was like, I can't, it's the giraffe. (laughs) This is so tragic. And it was like, that was it. So I I cried for an hour and then I finally got through everything else that had been built up. But that poor giraffe, I still, it's always about giraffe. That baby That's... is such that baby draft is such a metaphor for this whole last year. Mm. I mean, you have no control over this creature, but you are so excited for it and you can't do anything. Why do I feel like there's a song in this for you? Hmm. Don't worry. <laughs> <I wrote it. laughs> I mean, a lot of the, the new record is about just watching the story of your life and the people who raised you and the people who you've come to know throughout your existence like it's about not knowing where you stand while you watch this life happen around you sometimes so this is like too good a segue not to take it is there a song from the album you guys want to play you guys okay you want to you mind listening to a song we'd love to did you want us to play it live or should i send you a track i want you to do both oh well, I'll send you the track for sure after this. Okay. It's called The Baby Giraffe. Which one is it's called The Baby Giraffe? <laughs> We're going to make Sarah cry again. The hook will be sticking oh, your... Hey, the that's, hook will be sticking... The Tides. The Tides is the theme song for that. There you go. I was going to say, the hook will be sticking your neck out, but that's not right. particularly yeah. good. Colin, stop laughing at me. I'm laughing with well, you. I'm I'm laughing with a sad you. song or a sadder song? <laughs> I've, heard your, I've heard your last album, so let's go with sad. I don't think I can take sadder. <laughs> okay. We'll do the runaround. We just, uh, this song's actually out. Um, We released a single a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. Yeah. Colin, you're in for a treat. 
they are they are really amazing and harmony is 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 just to die for not so sad it's a little sad That's just sad one the other one yeah. way sadder yeah it's about the a lifelong the game alcoholic. that what's the, what's the name <laughs> that one's called the runaround yeah yeah so what does that make you think about with regard to like everything we've talked about you asking you asking you guys you guys oh, you guys yes. wrote it yeah we did uh the, i mean that song is truly written about watching a relationship fall apart so um and but not being in it yeah uh so i i feel like that's been quite a bit of what i've been doing this year but also (laughs) seeing myself inside of it now yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, that push you down part yeah it really hit me it push it's running around and push you down yeah Yeah. around the pushing down our lifelong game there's so much of that going on yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's actually a great line it's really a great line 
and I, I say that both from an artistic perspective, but also because it like relates to so much of, to me, I hear that and I think about, I mean, unfortunately, I'd also think a lot about the politics that we're going through right now too, because there's been a certain amount of that relationship that has also had the exact same kinds of, you know, it angers me so much. To, I shouldn't go in here. I wish I hadn't gone here, but I'm going to go. go you know. No, it's okay. It, I was, oh, I was actually going to bring up kind of part of that. I mean, in the, se- in the setting of everything else that's going on with COVID and obviously everything else that's happened here, mm-hmm. the fact that we have really had to go it alone societally, you know, means that there are clearly, you know, I, I, it reminds me of this book, Bonfire of the Vanities. There's been, it's clearly been this set of activities going on around us that we have no control over. Mm-hmm. And you watch them and you know how it's going to play out and you just can't you it's almost like you know you don't want to watch it again but you know you kind of have to because maybe this time it'll be different you know maybe there really will be a vaccine supply that will be announced that now we find out of course doesn't exist or maybe there really will be a statewide response to the need for mask mandates that we were all asking for and then you find out it's just a suggestion yeah i mean there's been a lot of the pushing down and the running around right now and, and there's two different realities that have been occurring. And I think it does tie in greatly into what we have been talking about this hour that, um, you know, I, I have actually lost friends, very close friends who um, live down the street from me, because even if I have access to some of the most uh, up-to-date information and accurate information about COVID, they believe that science is not uh, we are we are not good people and we should not have the data that we do or we're trying to use it for for bad things um, or there's some other conspiracy that we're uh, we're helping contribute to. Um, mm-hmm. I mean I, I know somebody who their sibling it works in the CDC and they believe that uh, COVID doesn't exist. And so there's just been two, divided groups um, and division. And really that does have a, a huge implication on healthcare providers and what we do in healthcare because you have people who go in. And like I said, my father-in-law did not think he was gonna die of COVID until a few hours before. He really thought he was gonna be okay. He thought that he had taken all the precautions. Um, he thought he had read somewhere that he had a blood type that was not meant that he yes. was gonna be fine. <clears throat> Um, you know, there's just so much information that was co- going out that he thought I will be fine. And so, um, you know, do I think that he was safe? I think that he tried his best. And do I think that um, that maybe he was misled by some information? Possibly. But at the end of the day, he and I lived in different realities sometimes because I didn't go out hardly at all unless I had to go to the store. And he thought it was safe enough to go to, to a restaurant every once in a while. You know, at the at end of the day, we are living in, in two different pockets of the nation um, in our country where some believe that healthcare providers are really out there intentionally trying to help right. and some believe that they're intentionally trying to hurt. Well, you know, I'll say one thing about that song and that, and that hook, which is we've talked a bit about the role that data can be playing if collected sort of prospectively outside of the healthcare system. So it's sort of a part of it, but not exactly. So if we had device, if we had technologies on your phones that were asking you questions, the other part of that is it's a bonding opportunity, isn't it? I mean, you talk about the fact that if the healthcare system is going to watch you from a distance and you're watching it from a distance, then everything that you just described, you can sit there, you can actually sit there and say, there they go again. If, if we are in your pocket, it may feel a little bit more like we're trustworthy, especially if we were actually using those data to say things like, I noticed you haven't been moving around as much, or I noticed that one of your parents hasn't eaten, hasn't opened the refrigerator all day. There hasn't been any activity in the house. Then maybe when that same system comes back and says, there's a vaccine that you really need to take, you'd almost anthropomorphize it enough to believe it cares about you. There's good evidence to show, and in mental health specifically, there's better evidence for things like talking to a machine, conversational agents and chatbots. Like people are more willing to do that. And sometimes they're more willing to be more open in that because there's a sense of, well, I can say it to this because it's I won't feel that judgment that a person might have for me. Um, but I think, I mean, what I'm thinking about is like, I felt this tension, but I think if we're going to ask people how they're really doing, we have to be willing to go where they want to go. Yeah, uh, one of 
one of the things that I think has made this feel more real to me, because I, I really haven't um, had a lot of, I've, I've not feared for myself uh, at any point, really. Um, and my family has stayed very healthy through this. So, uh, but I have friends who have gotten sick or uh, who, and recovered, thankfully. Um, and I have a lot of, we have a lot of friends who are in the medical field who have been telling us about their experiences with this. So in a way, um, I, I feel like I've been able to gain a different perspective because I do trust these friends of mine who are medical professionals who have been telling me what they have been experiencing, where in my, at least uh, as far as I'm aware, a lot of my family members who don't necessarily, or, or acquaintances who don't maybe believe that this is as big of a thing as it is, it's partly to do with the fact that I have that intimate relationship and and trust built up with these people who are in a profession that is on the front lines of this literally every day. So it's given me a different ability to understand what, what I'm not actually experiencing myself because I know this person's not Mm -hmm. going to lie to me that they've sent me masks that are more intense than the ones that I maybe could get on my own because they care and they believe how they, they are seeing a different thing that I'm seeing. So that's made a big difference in my believing that this is real. I will say Jane Bach, I know Sarah's had a chance to meet Jane. Jane is a songwriter who's also been on the podcast a couple times last year. She has written a lot for Reba McIntyre and others. Jane made a point of saying that trust has been by far the most important weapon that we needed all of last year. And in every conversation about informatics, um, whether it be conversations around, you know, the issues that you guys brought up before, which had to do with disclosing medical information and data privacy, or whether it be issues that relate to predictive analytics, as we're talking about some today, a lot of what we're talking about with regard to sort of the disinformation campaigns that are happening, Jane and others just kept saying, we all needed that port in the storm. We all needed that place where we knew there was trustworthy information Sometimes the technology was the most trustworthy information you could have. And, and I think maybe one of the messages that I'm hearing you guys tell us is, let's keep getting back to how do we unify? What's the role that fields like ours, informatics and public health informatics, can be playing to unify as well as to deliver? Because I think that the service delivery piece doesn't work so well if people don't trust you, as we're learning right now with the vaccine. Yeah. I I think a lot about, um, I grew up in a very rural area of Virginia where uh, the family doctor had taken care of most of my family for a number of years. And so he knew a lot about our family and just what was going on day to day. So, you know, if someone got sick, he might proactively call our family and say, does someone need to come in? Um, And so, um, you know, we're at a point, I don't think, where we can have family doctors and rural health situations like that um, for all Americans, but we have a lot of technology that could do something very similar. We've talked about it. So yeah. how do we um, how do we bring that feel, um, that preventative health care, um, and that that more compassionate feel um, to all to all folks? Because, you know, we've seen even with this pandemic where um, some some communities were marginalized and left out in areas, um, but how do we bring it to everybody? And I think healthcare systems can bring that label, uh, that ability to um, bring trust um, to all different types of communities. Well, this has clearly been the clarion call for this podcast is information, both to help us in the future, but really to help us in the present. You know, Colin, any last word? I just have a lot to think about. Uh, I think, I think, Sarah, what you said. So, you know, it's easy for us to talk about technology in people's pockets, but just remembering how many Americans even, right, don't have that technology in their pockets. And, and, and the fact that to make that equitable, which is another important conversation yes. happening today is so important. And it can't just be on a smartphone. We have to yep. reach people where they live, not where we want them to live. Absolutely. Yep. One of the episodes I'm going to do this year, and hopefully, and everybody, you know, we'll talk more about who can come on and everything. I want to have an episode with some Spanish speaking, hopefully bilingual people, because I am terrible at Spanish. And I'd really like to understand, are you guys bilingual? Our, no, our neighbors are a bilingual family. If you, Yeah, connect um, us, if you if will. Can help with that at all, yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, one of the things I've discovered is, as much as we've said it was great about telemedicine, for example, 
patients with limited English proficiency have been left behind. There was simply, I mean, I've heard so many stories from ranging from the fact that we have a Spanish version of our portal here at Vanderbilt, but it requires a knowledge of English to activate it. Um, and oh, so wow. if you can just get through those first couple of pages of 100% pure undecipherable code, which is English, then it's all perfect for you. Wow. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. Okay, it's late. I've held you up. Oh, thank you, oh, Kevin. Thanks. thanks for having us on again. It's always, yeah, well, it's becoming always lovely to talk to you all. <laughs> <laughs> all the two times. <laughs>